0: Show you a better way Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is episode 1787. It's Monday. That means it's a listener feedback show. But if you can't tell, I'm jazzed up. And the reason I'm jazzed up, this will be a listener feedback show. But it will be a very unconventional one, atypical even, you might say, because the awesome Dr. Bones is here in the TSP studio at Nile Mile Farm with me. Yes, he is here, him and the crazy... Spontaneous, amazing Nurse Amy, but Nurse Amy's not sitting in on the interview. Uh, the show today, just Doc Bones. It's going to be sort of like an interview, but more like having a co-host, uh, something I've never really done ever before. So this will be kind of the first time I ever had a co-host to a show, and yet most of the material, a little bit is from Doc Bones, but most of the material is feedback questions I had anyway around Zika virus. Um, pandemic preparedness, uh, first aid kits, and stuff like that. We're going to talk about all of that with Dr. Bones in just a minute. Before we do, let's go ahead and take a look at the year that was the episode so we can have some historical context today. Nothing on medical things really today, but some very important things. The year 1787, because, well... It is, in fact, episode 1787, and the year that was the episode has to match the year that is the episode. So Alex Shrugged has the following for us today, Botany Bay, the Undesirable Colony, and then I have the Constitutional Convention, and I also have some bullet points, other massively important stuff, the first steamboat in America is built by John Fitch, I also have the first of the Federalist Federalist Papers. Is published by Alexander Hamilton to answer the anti-federalist criticisms. And the Northwest Ordinance grants an individual's right to own land in perpetuity defines how a state can be established and limit slavery in Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Minnesota. I'm going to read the Constitutional Convention for you here. After Shays' Rebellion, the states are nervous. The Congress needs more power to put down rebellions and to handle the war debt. That will require taxing the states, but everyone is worried about secret monarchists imposing another kingship. James Madison and Alexander Hamilton want a central government with the power to tax, but if they propose a radical change to the Articles of Federation, they might get no change at all. George Washington supports a central government, but he wants it to to, to remain in retirement. Madison convinces him to put his name on a list of participants to lend legitimacy to the convention. People naturally assume Washington is leading the convention, so as the time approaches, Washington cannot withdraw. Madison has forced Washington out of retirement. The convention is a secret negotiation, but once the Constitution is sent to the states for ratification, Madison is sure he has failed in his main goals. Nevertheless, after thinking about it, he realizes that they have created something they can work with. My take by Alex Shrug. The Philadelphia convention was a competition between the Virginia plan, federal veto power over the states, and Hamilton's plan, no state sovereignty at all or the New Jersey plan a state appointed senate that protects state sovereignty they compromise between the Virginia plan and the New Jersey plan but with no with, fed, with no federal powers to veto state laws so what happened to uh opposition to any constitution the main opposition leader, Patrick Henry, didn't show up for the convention. His strategy was to stand aloof so that the, when the monarchist failed, he could save the day. Instead, he was sidelined when the debate turned toward ratification of the Constitution. The debate on ratification was impressive. I suggest reading Ratification, the People, uh, Debate the Constitution by Pauline Mayer. Citizens had a baseline education that included how to think. Today we are given facts to memorize without skills necessary to evaluate what those facts imply. A person who can think is very difficult to manage because he is always asking intelligent questions. An ignorant person cannot be free. And I would also say that, you know what, we do still have the same Constitution, mostly, that was ratified all these years ago, and yet we don't have much freedom. And we could use that Constitution as thinking people to have more freedom and to take power from the state at will, honestly, if we wanted to. But yet, since we cannot think, we do not think. And since we do not think, we do not think that way. Instead, we memorize what we are told. We believe our rights come from the Constitution when that Constitution is charged with the protection of the rights and them being inherent and pre existing of any Constitution or government whatsoever on the planet. But that's just me thinking, because I'm one of those crazy people that actually believes in individual freedom and liberty, and I believe it 100%, 100% all of the time, not just when it's convenient, or not just when freedom looks like what I expect that other people would do with theirs. So long as you want to swing your fists, it is fine until you hit my nose, paraphrasing one of our Supreme Court justices from about 100 years ago. Anyway, with that wrapped up, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day before we get on with it with Doc Bones. Hey guys, do want to show off your survival podcast pride by shopping at tspgear.com where we have awesome tools like the Pocket Shot, Slingshot, and the TSP Edition of the Genesis Knife by MT Knives along with shirts, patches, and more. Learn more at tspgear.com. Hey, guys, you know what? I love using herbs over conventional medicine for so many reasons. But there's so much hype in the herbal industry, it's hard to know who to trust. That's why I was so excited over seven years ago when I found Western Botanicals, an honest company with great products and wonderful people who really care about their customers. For all your herbal needs, do what I do and check out westernbotanicals.com. All right, folks, and with that, it's uh, great to have my good buddy, old man Doc Bones, in the studio with us. And uh, this is one of the rare actual, you know, where I have a co-host that's actually with me, not remote on Skype. So we shouldn't have any jumps and jitters and things like that. But uh, I don't know. He uh, he might do something crazy while he's here. Now, that'd be your wife, wouldn't it? My lovely
1: <laughs> wife. She is here also, but she's out tending to the ducks and just looking around and breathing the air and... Uh, you know, and and minding putting the, the zap
0: on her mind, as they said in Apocalypse Now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, we, uh, we we usually do a listener feedback show today, and actually that's pretty much what we're going to be doing anyway, because most of this material is stuff that you guys have sent me within the last two weeks, asking me questions. Um, I think one or two I robbed from things that were for Bones on expert counsel, but most of it was actually for me, and some of it I was like, I need to spend this in expert counsel anyway. Then, you know what, all of a sudden these two crazy people show up at my house. It's Monday. It's a feedback show. I've got all this great material. I figure why not invite Doc on to talk about this stuff. So, Doc, the uh, the first question that came in from a listener recently, and, and my answer to this up until I talked to you last night has been, don't worry about it, uh, is the Zika virus. And what they're saying is this, is all this stuff on TV hype and of course some of it must be but is there really anything to be concerned about zika at all or is this like Ebola 2.0 or is it even worse than that is it like the you know swine flu that was going to kill us all and did nothing <laughs> well as you know a lot of these a lot of these pandemic
1: warnings wind up turning out to be less than what you would expect and that actually doesn't surprise me. You know, the CDC, the World Health Organization, oftentimes has to tell you that it's going to be a little worse than they might actually think so because people don't pay attention and don't care about anything unless they think that there's actually a possible threat to them. So, you know, this is, I think, a purposeful, slightly more alert than what It possibly deserves. So you're saying
0: there's a concern but they're they're going a little beyond how serious because they need to do that to get us to pay attention at all. So they're getting into a boy cried wolf mode. Right, but the CDC has learned a lesson because they actually didn't do that
1: as much when Ebola came around and those nurses in Texas wound up getting uh, infected. They weren't ready Mm. and so now they are overcompensating a little bit now, but let me tell you about Zika virus Zika virus, by the way I am, shameless plug, the (laughs) only doctor to have written a book about Zika virus. It is called The Zika Virus Handbook. A doctor tells you all you need to know about the pandemic. Not only am I a doctor and not only am I interested in saving you from terrible epidemics, but I am also an obstetrician. Holy mackerel, what does Zika virus do? Zika virus can cause viral defects uh, in the brain case or the cranium of uh, fetuses and fetuses wind up ha- getting born with small heads, what used to be called very nastily, pinheads and wind up having, well, an, associati- an associatively appropriately sized brain for their brain case that leads to severe defects, something that countries that don't have two nickels to rub together, like Brazil definitely don't need to have to care for thousands of infants that are going to be very severely damaged adults. So for that reason alone, that might be worth it. But there's, for me, some concern about Zika virus simply because it's not acting like Zika virus has acted for the last 60 years, which is basically a mild infection that 80% of the people don't even have symptoms and that's about it. It started off in Africa, went to Asia, went then to French Polynesia and now has the pond and is in South America not only South America but the Caribbean and indeed there have been on US territory if we include Puerto Rico there have been about 700 cases mm-hmm. and one and one death which is funny because zika really doesn't doesn't cause death in most cases it causes fetal abnormalities like microcephaly like i just mentioned but it also causes in adults nerve cell disease, the Zika virus in laboratory studies, actually kills nerve cells, and that is what's going on. It causes Guillain-Barre and a lot of other multiple sclerosis-looking diseases.
0: Okay, so that does sound like something to be concerned. How much of it has actually been evidenced in the United States? I I did hear you said one person died. I heard a person died in Florida. Is that right? No, died in Puerto Rico. Oh, Puerto Rico. Okay. Let me tell you about the
1: mosquito that transmits the virus. The mosquito is Aedes aegypti, comes from Egypt, and the word Aedes in Greek means unpleasant. And boy, (laughs) I'll say, well, the truth of the matter is is that the Aedes mosquito has expanded its range in the United States. Last survey, was in 12 states, including Texas, Mm -hmm. including Florida, both of our home states. And actually, it is now found in... 30 states of the Union. It overwinters in places like Washington, D.C., New York City. New York City, as a matter of fact, after Florida and Texas has the third largest number of Zika cases that have presented to to hospitals. But so far, most of it, so no need to panic, most of it has come from people that have gone to Central America and South America. So ladies and gentlemen, for God's sake, don't go there unless you really absolutely have to. And by the way, with the Olympics coming, let me ask let me Jack let me ask you a question okay all right um, let's say that there's an a, a, an event and half a million people from hundred and eighty countries are going to go to that event. Would you put that event in the epicenter of a of, a, of a, what appears to be a major epidemic?
0: I I certainly would not. I think the decision for Brazil for the Olympics was made long before this concern about uh, Zika virus, though. I mean, I think that decision goes back like four Olympics now. That's like how far out they are. So the problem they would have now is Brazil has spent like a gajillion dollars, and Brazil's not exactly heavy with cash, uh, to Provide all these facilities and like clean the cesspool of their water up so the swimmers can swim without dying and whatever else. And now you're <laughs> going to say like, okay, we can't do it there. Now I can see a good reason to say that, but I don't think that the uh, the you know, the International Olympic Committee has the the political stones to make that change. The
1: Olympic so, International Olympic Committee, the senior member of the International Olympic Committee, calls Zika a manufactured crisis and that there is absolutely no problem. Yet Zika cases. Have appeared in China, have appeared in Russia, places like that, from people that have traveled from the epidemic zone. And interestingly enough, Rio de
0: Janeiro, <laughs> where everything's happening, is the epicenter. Well, I, I don't know this. if you've been to Rio. I've been to Rio, and they do have mosquitoes there. A few <laughs> yeah, of them. There's, few. there's like. There's like 15, Eight. right, per cubic inch of yeah, your body. Yes, of your body, right. Yeah, right? I yes. mean, there's a lot of them there, and they, they are those little stripe bastards, mm-hmm. you know. They, they really are yes. the, the ones the we're right talking ones, about. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I can see that being a problem. So now, on top of that, the we had another question from a listener that fits right into what you just said. So they said it's a manufactured crisis. There's been some rumblings that maybe that could be the case, but not in the way maybe he meant it, that there may be, in fact... This epicenter in South America, which is not where this has traditionally been a big problem, because of contaminated or infected vaccines that were used in that area. Do you know if there's any truth to that? I I want to tell you that about
1: vaccines that we assume, just in general, that all vaccines are exactly the same. We assume that every lot of vaccine is as effective as every other lot of vaccine. And I'm sure a lot of your listeners haven't even ever ever thought of that, whether a particular lot is better than another of a vaccine. So even if a vaccine works, which that isn't always the case, the flu vaccine, for example, in 2014, had exactly a 19% effectiveness rate in preventing influenza in people. So not all vaccines are uh, perfect. Whatever I say, things like that, I lose followers now. But now, what I'm going to tell you in this case is something that you might not believe, you'll believe in even less. The truth of the matter is, is that all vaccines aren't created equal. The ones that wind up in third world countries, believe me, if you probably saw the conditions in which they're transported and conditions in which they're handled, it wouldn't surprise me if these vaccines are
0: contaminated Heck, they could be contaminated with the virus itself. So let's kind of painting this in the redneck version. What you're basically saying is what we do first is we take our factory seconds and we offload those to third, third world, world, world country, right. countries. Right. And then those third world countries are less equipped to provide the right transport, storage, and care. So we've already taken a second rate product, put it into a second rate, maybe a third rate situation, mm-hmm. and that... Even if they weren't maybe contaminated in our production facilities, by the time they get there, they can become contaminated. To give, you a, to give you a quality control comparison, compare the number of,
1: of cases of Ebola in West Africa, even among people that wind, wound up either in hospitals or who worked in hospitals, compare it with in the United States Mm -hmm. and then you get a little idea of the quality control in terms of infection prevention Mm -hmm. and isolation and and the uh, work that they do with medicines and vaccines and things like that compare it through countries and you see that Brazil is absolutely unprepared to deal with this and the people in Brazil by the way don't even talk had one of my employees went to Brazil recently they don't even talk about the Zika virus. they sit outside in the heat and he himself got bitten at least a half a dozen times you know so we actually had to put him in in quarantine, quarantine. we we wrapped, <laughs> we wrapped him in duct tape against the wall for six days until the virus uh, <laughs> but so, we do that to him half, most of the time anyhow you know he, <laughs> yeah. wasn't, the,
0: wasn't the first time so I mean I guess I feel like the biggest threat of this is to women that are pregnant, right? That, that that seems like the biggest threat to me right now, except you said it's not acting in all cases like it usually did. Like there's more symptoms and, and problems for people that are adults that are infected. Is there any reason in your mind as to why that's the case? I believe, well... It actually, mutated at, in the virus. Right in, in the very
1: beginning, I personally said that I believe that the, mu- the Zika virus has mutated. It is not exactly the same virus. I actually, I, I'm privy and I wind up being called in on all of the alerts for physicians in the state of Florida, which is going to be considered to be a hotbed. They think of some some locally transmitted uh, infections uh, over the summer and. Uh, I asked them, you know, hey, this sounds like a virus has mutated. It's not acting exactly like it did in Africa and Asia. You know, there were a few cases in French Polynesia. Now there are a bunch of cases of of fetal issues in South America. And they, they said, oh, you know what, that might be the case. Now I can't believe that these people that are in charge of what's going on actually sort of, it sounded to me a little bit as if, this was like a novel idea. It should have been the first thing in their
0: minds. So okay, my 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 foil hat now goes on just a little bit and says, if it's possible that vaccines were contaminated with Zika virus, and we take a vaccine which is this cocktail of of immune you know immune uh, uh, spurring things that are things that are designed to trigger the immune system, and you take those two things, the Zika virus and this you know. Uh, vaccine cocktail and you put them together, could that cause the vaccine itself to mutate? Well, yeah, could it be a
1: catalyst, a trigger. None of this stuff would surprise me. Now, of course, you know, alive, not saying that alive, I'm just saying that live, you know, the, a live vaccine would probably be more likely to do that than a dead vaccine. So it depends on how the how the how the vaccine is prepared. So okay. that particular vaccine that they give to pregnant ladies, you know, the MMR and some of the other ones that they do that that they gave by the way the timing on that is actually also you know a suspicious, little suspicious yeah. a little suspicious for that country not all countries, but for that, for that
0: country. country where it all is exploding right now, it's interesting. So, kind of shifting gears a little bit because we can only be we only know so much about Zika right now. If you want to learn more, they should get your book. Absolutely, they should get my book. <laughs> but the Zika virus handbook on
1: Amazon.com. We
0: we did have another question, uh, kind of in this vein, mm-hmm. but it wasn't really about Zika. It was overall, what are some good items? Uh, For a pandemic hit, what are some good considerations for basic pandemic preparedness? Because I think you would agree, like me, that it doesn't really matter which disease eventually causes a serious, actual, blow-the-alarm global pandemic. In the end, we're going to deal with many of the same common situations uh, if it's some mutated Zika, if it's that whatever that stuff is you get from bats, what is it called, Mitt or something like that? There, oh, uh, there are a bunch of stuff. Z- uh, Ebola was from bats, right? Yeah. So I mean, there's, there's, but there's something called MIMF. that if people, it's only in Southeast Asia now, and it's they figured out these like, these they were storing their fruit juice to ferment it in the trees, and the bats mm-hmm. were drinking it, and that's why yeah. they were getting. It. But if you get that. You're freaking dead. There's you're done. Right. So if there's that's ever, why that's why I never store my fruit juice in trees and let bats drink out of <laughs> right. it. Right? I mean, right. so but but what I'm saying is there's all types of things. There's even people that question whether or not bubonic plague in the Black Death was actually the bubonic plague and what the hell that might be if it ever came back. So someday we could deal with this. So what is the basic preparedness mindset and kit items to deal with pandemics like? You know this person said they already have the respirator masks and stuff like that, but all right well that hey you know what that's a good start you're ahead and and listener, you
1: are ahead of ninety nine percent of the people if you have one mask you're ninety nine percent ahead of the rest of the of the folks now the bottom line with any kind of pandemic preparedness plan is you have to put together a good survival sick room so therefore I want you to first off I don't want you to Equip it and have it ready to go tomorrow. I don't want to go into your house and see an ICU bed and, and things like that yeah, in your kids' room, you know, in your we kids', have a kids sleeping. Bed. Yeah. We have a hangover, hangover bed upstairs, but we don't have a Yes, it was room. great. Thank you.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right, but the bottom line is you have to put together and plan out, or you have to plan out a good Sick room. Basically, take a room at one side of the house away from common areas. You want a room that you can put the sick people so they will be separate from the healthy people and but still have the best chance to recover. Now, the, this kind of room needs to be very lightly furnished. You don't want carpeting, you don't want fabric uh, uh, covered sofas and chairs and things like that. You want things to be, you know, hardwood floors. You want very basic counter space type material you want a place to put a basin preferably outside you want to have the room has to be able to be closed and if you doesn't have a door you need to put some plastic sheeting to separate out uh, separate uh, People out, that's important. Speaking of plastic sheeting, that's an item that you might want to have because if you have people with infectious disease, you really don't want them spending a lot of time on your bedding without some barrier. And so plastic sheeting is going to be very important. Simple things like bleach that you're going to have to disinfect your countertops. Simple things like dealing with people's, uh, waste, uh, dedicating utensils, dedicating bedding to people and let's put it this way even something as simple as a whistle you give you give your patients a whistle that these people are on one side of your house and you may not know when they need you and so you have to have you have to have a whistle some kind of noise making signaling mechanism right but of course don't forget that you know that room or that tent uh, that hospital tent needs to have ventilation and needs to have light
0: all right, so let's definitely talk more about what we need to do to be prepared. But I had another really coincidental question coming from a listener uh, about a week ago. Um, they basically said they're always hearing the words pandemic and epidemic used, you know, back and forth, almost like the same thing. And they wanted to know what the actual difference, you know, where's the cutoff line? And I think if you're the one sick, it doesn't really matter. And if you're the one affected, it doesn't really matter. But from a global standpoint, it does matter. So could you kind of talk about that a bit? Yeah, there are three words that you really need
1: to know when it comes to understanding community-wide infectious disease outbreaks. And that is endemic, the word endemic, which is not epidemic or pandemic, and, of course, epidemic and pandemic. And endemic disease is a disease that's there all the time. For example, there are countries... In this world, especially around equatorial regions that have malaria all the time. There's no such thing as a malaria okay. epidemic, really. Right. It's right. just there's malaria it's, there. Right. It is endemic, therefore.
0: Joe got malaria mm. in Ecuador. Well, no crap, right? Yeah. There, there's right. That's just how that's it That's a works. place
1: where it happens. Now, an epidemic is a rapid, widespread, community-wide outbreak of a disease that's not there ordinarily. And so right. the Ebola epidemic w- would be a... A typical example, West Africa was not where most of the Ebola epidemics were occurring. It was occurring in Central Africa, uh, maybe even Eastern, like Uganda, places like that. However, this is a new disease that people, I guess, I think were undercooking bats, that they were cooking over 55-gallon drums, and they ate, ate them. They're the natural reservoir for that particular disease in that area, and sure enough, they humans wound up getting the infection, but it was a new
0: infection for humans in that area. So mm. that was an epidemic. And it didn't become a pandemic because it, it, even though there were some isolated cases in other countries, it didn't, right. it didn't migrate across to other... Right. It, it didn't come global. Exactly. Matter of fact, there is, the
1: World Health Organization has specific phases that indicate whether something is becoming an epidemic or a pandemic. I'm going to go real quick over it. Phase one, virus found in animals, not in humans. Phase two, disease is proven to be infecting humans. Phase three, small clusters of disease occur in humans but don't affect entire communities. We can say that Zika is doing is at that phase right now. There right. are a few hundred cases that have occurred in U.S. citizens, at least that, uh, with regards to the U.S. So we're in phase three for Zika in the U.S. Uh, phase four, it affects com- entire communities qualifies as a pande- as an epidemic, but risk of a rare pandemic is unlikely. Now, you might think that would apply to Brazil, but that doesn't because there are also cases that are occurring in communities in Asia and French Polynesia already. So so it's further along than that. Now Ebola hit Phase five. That was the spread of the disease between humans in more than one country but not big, giant communities affected in in a bunch of different countries. But some bordering countries, okay. yeah, so that was phase five. That was a That was still an epidemic. But a full-blown pandemic, you have community-wide outbreaks in at least different countries in different regions. And so Zika virus absolutely manages that. There have been community-wide outbreaks in French Polynesia, in uh, Africa, in Asia, Malaysia, for example, and also in now Central America, Puerto Rico, number a number of places. So that's, your, that's the difference.
0: So on Zika, I, this is an interesting I just kind of thought of. like So there's certain diseases that if you get them, you develop a significant immunity to them, and then there's other diseases you get them and you develop no immunity. Malaria, a person can get malaria multiple times. Mm. Zika, once a person has Zika do they tend to ever get zika again
1: no they are thought to be immune to it but the truth of the matter is, is that how much do we really know about it we're not really sure okay. but we're hoping we're hoping that there's going to be significant immunity in people that have wound up having zika the, the issue is is that the kids for example the feet newborns that wind up with the the abnormalities well, there's not too much that you can you can do for them once they're born with an abnormality. yeah, yeah. Or there, even in late pregnancy. There's
0: service. birth defects that are somewhat easily remedied mm-hmm. by modern surgical techniques. Having a head that's too small is not one of them. We can't just that's right. make it bigger. And at that point, the brain's already developed too small in the first place. So my other concern, I guess, would be, okay, they develop immunity, but if this is a new strain of mutation, right, And you're telling me that it has neurological consequences. For adults. Right. It may be that a person that looks like they've recovered just fine might have long-term neurological implications. There are certain diseases that come back as different diseases later in life. For instance, shingles and chickenpox, which is very much a neural-related issue when it comes back as shingles, where it's not so much as chickenpox.
1: Because Zika hasn't been studied very much, so even though we know that it has existed for 70 years, we really haven't spent much time looking at long term effects on people that have been diagnosed with it. Yeah. You know, some people that have Ebola have chronic issues with it. Uh, many of them have issues with their um, eyesight, many of them have issues with their hearing, so there are post viral syndromes yeah. that can occur and we will never well we'll know maybe not in my lifetime but we'll know about whether there is such a thing with zika yeah you know in over the course of time
0: because that could be a real problem because if you have a disease that looks pretty benign to everybody except pregnant females and Everybody seems to recover from it, or as you said, sixty, seventy, eighty percent of people have it. Like West Nile, don't even know they without have it without symptoms. Without right. symptoms, could still have the chronic recurrent symptoms, and we may not even recognize those when they first start popping up. That's that's a possibility too. That's
1: the the funny thing is that for for pregnant ladies, the most dangerous thing is if they get Zika without knowing they had it, without any symptoms, because then they'll only find out that their baby has been has been affected. And in in some cases, confirmed Zika cases, uh, in pregnant women, have some studies have shown a 29% chance that some abnormality will occur. So it, if you don't know that you
0: have it, you don't know to
1: do any special testing or mm. more frequent ultrasounds, let's say, than the average person.
0: And, and that's why they're telling women that have been to these areas to not have children for two years? Yes, a state policy and and
1: this is not something you I think it's almost unprecedented I've, you know China has that one child policy yeah. but places like Nicaragua and and other areas that are in, in feel endangered by the the virus actually have mandated that women should not get pregnant for at least two years in Jamaica they suggest one year. So, I mean, there are a number of different places that are asking the, the women, their women not to become pregnant. That is a pretty draconian it is. statement. It I mean, is. I don't, they don't put them in jail, I'm sure, if they do. But,
0: yeah, but they're you know. basically saying you're not supposed to do this because it's a legitimate... Like, so, you know me, I'm I'm not big on the state at all in any way, not even a tiny bit. But there are certain things that I see when a state does them, I, I understand why. I, I see plenty of abuse, but yet then there's other types So, like, if you did have an epidemic in the United States of, let's say, a deadly flu, mm-hmm. right? They're going to declare martial law. They're going to lock down areas. If people are going to flip out in the liberty movement. And all. But in that case, it is literally the only thing you can do. It is the only way to slow down the spread is to stop people from intermingling until the disease plays out. So there's times when even I go, yeah, I get it. So let me ask you a question. Do you think that... It would be wise to
1: forbid Americans to travel to Rio de
0: Janeiro this summer for the Olympics. See, I don't know. I, I that's a tough one because we're not talking about something that has people dropping over dead left mm-hmm. and right. I think if you if you went down there fully informed and you were female, you're making a decision. Then I'm not going to have a baby for the next two years, right? Or, or at least something like that. We I don't know that we can test for this yet to determine whether or not you've you've been exposed. Like so, you can test for it, but it is a test that's available
1: in a state lab here and there, okay. and the NIH
0: and yeah. the CDC hospitals. Yeah. So that I, I don't I don't really know. I mean, if it was a bowl, I'd say absolutely. Like, mm-hmm. you, if if we had a bowl in Brazil right now and they were planning on doing the, the, the Olympic games. anyway, I'd be like, no, because that triggering kills the kills you dead. Right. Mm-hmm. There's no question about it. Mm-hmm. Like. Untreated, I think the death rate from Ebola is over 90%, right? So well, it's. Well, it wound up being 50%, but only after. It started off at 90%, okay. only after
1: we started paying attention to it. Okay. Did it drop? But even then, it dropped just to 50%. It still yeah. killed half the people, and it killed an inordinate amount but of those were, healthcare I'm workers. I'm saying
0: untreated. Like, if you're not treated, isn't the death no, rate. Oh, you're not treated, you're done. <laughs> yeah. Right? I mean, yeah. it's that lethal. So when I see something like that, that makes a lot more sense to me to be. That draconian. I, I don't know. That's a tough one because that you're telling right now what you're telling people that spent the last 20 years of their life in preparation. You're not going to get to compete in the Olympic Games, which is the biggest thing ever. Period mm-hmm. for those athletes. Now saying these are things you're going to have to accept if you do this. I think that's maybe a little bit different.
1: They even. I'll tell you this much: that a couple of days ago, I saw an article in the. In uh, online, where one of the the Brazil's national soccer team's big stars actually said, "Don't come."
0: Well, there'd be a reason for him to say (laughs) that, right? (laughs) I mean, I don't know if you remember the '84 Olympics when Russia boycotted. Yes, I remember. In L.A., we did really good that year. (laughs) We won. I mean, like I think Russia didn't come. China didn't. Oh, China came. Yes, and we came right, but like a whole bunch of like the Eastern Bloc countries right, did not come. Not come yeah. We won so many medals. Uh, I know, right? Yeah. It was so good for yeah, us. I know. That, you know awesome. they, so yeah. I, oh, so it might help Brazil. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, we, oh, point, come. See, that's what I'm saying. If I were, if I were playing <laughs> the Brazil soccer, mm. and I could like eliminate some of my my toughest competition for the medal rounds by saying, yeah, yeah, it's not safe, don't come. I might do that. Now, I have a
1: question. <laughs> Why do they call it the Summer Olympics when it's winter in Brazil? I don't know. <laughs> I July, don't have a good answer for July, that. July and August is the coldest months of the year in Brazil. Of course, but, but that's, when later, I would, but, that's when I would go to Brazil. <laughs> we have to call it Winter Olympics there's an interesting. 0.
0: There's an interesting thing there that may be... Either a higher or a lower season for mosquitoes. I'm thinking it actually might be a higher season for mosquitoes in Brazil because it's probably no. You know what? If, if, the, if the climate of Brazil is anything similar to like Panama and what have you, the winter is the dry season. So it may actually be a safer time if there is such a thing to be there.
1: I just it's just my impression that anything that's on the equator. Of course, not all yeah. countries on the equator, but anything that's on the equator most likely. Is not going to have that much temperature range difference throughout the year, right? Isn't yeah, but I'm not talking about point?
0: temperature. I'm talking about no, precipitation.
1: Um, yeah, precipitation well, because that's true. Well, some some countries
0: on the equator have monsoons. Yeah,
1: and I don't, I don't just don't know if that happens in Brazil
0: because, like, uh, so I lived in Panama and Honduras for years, and it, what would happen is it would rain every day, every single day, every single day <laughs> for nine months out of the year, mm-hmm. and then December, January, and February, it just stopped and by March, like it was fire danger, and then April the rains came back. So maybe flipped over to the other side. That's their winter. They may be in the dry season, you know, I don't know. One last thing I'd like to
1: say about about this is that Brazil has undergone its greatest military mobilization in the history of its country and it's to fight a mosquito. Huh. Huh. <laughs> they they have to use all of their soldiery to, to, to fight mosquitoes to do mosquito control spraying things like that so it is some it is an unusual disease in a, in a few ways you know hopefully it won't be a big issue i believe i, well, I believe that there'll be some locally transmitted cases uh, in texas and florida and fun, strangely i believe washington and new york city because uh, i think there's good quantities of those mosquitoes there but I just don't think that... we're There's also a have lot a of travel
0: there, too. Yes, right? that's, yes that's,
1: that's true. But I don't think we're going to have community-wide issues or really can call it a true epidemic. But um, it's something that you should consider. Mosquito repellents, maybe, maybe long sleeves and long pants might be a good idea. And unless you really... and I, And I say this for men, too. You know, if you are in a relationship with a woman... Then maybe you shouldn't travel to Central and South America unless you need to. It is sexually transmitted. That, okay. that part's proven. Okay. And it lasts. And it lasts in your blood only a, only a week or so. But the Zika virus lasts in
0: your semen for months. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Wonderful. And I, I, you know what gets me is I've always said I've been doing this show of mine now for like eight years plus. And I've always said from the very beginning to prepare for the disasters that are most likely to happen to you. And those are things like losing a job, getting in a wreck and being injured, tornadoes, local storms, flooding. But the big disaster that we will deal with sooner or later, maybe not in our lifetimes, but sooner or later, will be a deadly global pandemic. Like that sooner or later, there's just the math that the viruses need one good day to mutate the right way. And we're going to deal with this sooner or later. And that's why you have to be prepared for epidemics, medical
1: preparedness means med- be prepared for traumatic injuries due to tornadoes and stuff, but it also means be prepared for epidemics. I mean, I'll grant your listeners that this year it's unlikely that they're going to be affected by a major disaster, but you know what? Over the course of your lifetime, or the over the course of your children's lifetimes, maybe not so small a chance that you're going to be affected, so it's time to instill a culture of preparedness General preparedness, certainly, but consider medical preparedness as part of a plan to succeed, even if everything else fails.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I mean, the other thing is the overlap. So there if you're worried about a financial collapse, if you have a, a global pandemic, you're going to have a financial collapse. Conversely, if we do have a global financial collapse, mm-hmm. you're going to have epidemics and pandemics as a result because of the breakdown of society. So like... Those things go hand in hand. If you had uh, people are worried about the EMP threat, I'm not really because I understand physics and electronics and stuff like that. But let's say you did have a global grid shutdown or a U.S. grid shutdown, then you're going to deal with pandemics and epidemics and a financial collapse. Like so, the concept is always being prepared to deal without systems of support, mm-hmm. no matter what. Because if you do that, then you're prepared for anything, mm-hmm. right? I know it's kind of hokey to quote the Boy Scouts with "Be prepared," but it used to be, but I don't think it is anymore because America is not freaking prepared for, I don't know, I don't think America's prepared for McDonald's to run out of freaking franchise. Absolutely, I think uh, we're, like, two weeks
1: away from cannibalism, you know,
0: <laughs> at any one time. Well, the one guy time, did, the guy know, did call 911 because McDonald's was out of McNuggets. Yeah, I, right. right. So, I mean, I was right. saying the French fry thing to be facetious, but then right. I remembered that and said this actually, to some people, is I know. cataclysm. It's apocalypse. Dogs and cats are having puppy well, kids. See, and
1: I think that's, that's excessive. I wouldn't do that unless they ran out of sweet and sour sauce. No. <laughs> oh. All right. Now, I have to ask you a question because yeah. our listeners... Our, our, this is a twofer. All three of them, all three <laughs> of our listeners would like to know what's been happening with you. There are a bunch of ducks here, and... Why, first off, I want everybody, I want to point everybody to the survival podcast, Duck Chronicles. And I want you to tell us a little bit about Duck Chronicles and why ducks and why not
0: ostriches. No, okay. 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 (laughs) So, honestly, the best place to learn about the duck side of what we're doing is our farm website, which is ninemile.farm. Um, but if you go to the survival podcast, you can find all the stuff that we do. If you go to duckchronicles.com, you can see all of the duck chronicles that we've done over a couple of years of of bringing up our duck flocks. The ducks that are on our farm are here because our farm wasn't a farm. It was this desolate, brown piece of land on this rock outcropping that just sucked in north-central Texas. It was like literally, land-wise, the worst property I could have bought. I bought it because of the infrastructure, the house, the size of the land, being unincorporated, being able to do whatever I want. We started out with chickens, and they destroyed everything, so we got rid of them, we brought ducks in, and they've restored the land. So we're running about 150 ducks right now. Uh, my wife has a side business selling the eggs. We sell those for $8 a dozen. And it's not our main income stream, but it definitely. Is an income stream. I just want to tell everybody that these
1: guys have these baskets that you, if you are, if you play golf, they that's where they put the range balls, and we filled up a couple of them. Yeah, (laughs) big
0: big buckets. Just walking around the place today, they these ducks lay eggs all over. And, And you know, we've been able. This isn't very much a survival topic, except developing income streams beyond your job or your main business is very much. Uh, preparedness topic and we've been able to do that by we have several restaurants that are, are featuring our eggs on their menu and things like that but the ducks are really a property management tool so i have three acres uh i can either weed it deal with insects on it uh mow it and do that many times a year we can mow a few times a year when it gets really high and let the ducks do all the rest of the work so they're a property management tool uh, and then people just like them, and they're also a preparedness component to us because there's a lot of drakes out there, and I don't really need those drakes. So if we mm-hmm. ended up in a food shortfall, there's you know a lot of meat on the hoof out there, so to speak, right now, and it doesn't require any means of storage while it's alive. So we, so, unlike a cow, let's say you kept cow a, a couple cattle, and you said, well, if things go wrong, we'll kill one of the cows. Okay, now you've killed a cow. Yeah. Now you have 700 pounds of meat. You've got to do something with that seven hundred pounds of meat. So unless you really like biltong and jerky, right? right. You got to proce- and That's a lot of meat to process. Where we can go out and kill a duck, and that duck can give us three meals. We can have an initial meal just from a protein source, taking breast colors and things like that. Then we can chop up little pieces of it and make a casserole or enchiladas or something like that. And then we can take the frame and we can make a soup. Right. So it's it's it, it, it. And that's all from one bird, one of the larger drakes. So we we have that kind of a sustainability thing going on here. We have a lot of stuff on the farm. You know, my folks are pretty familiar with it, but your folks may really want to get over and take a look at what we're doing. But it's only a piece of what we do. Um, our whole philosophy here is helping you live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. So we have a preparedness mindset that evolves around what I call probability of disaster versus impact scale. So what I mean by that is we kind of touched on it as we were chatting about epidemics is a global pandemic would be a huge impact scale, but a very low probability that tomorrow or next week or next year, you individually are going to be sick and dying because of a global pandemic. So that is like, we're working to get prepared for that. But what we're going to start out with is, are you prepared if your spouse is on the way to work today, gets hit in a car and ends up paralyzed? That is a disaster. That is an epic disaster. Epic for the disaster. Person. And that happens to somebody oh, yeah. every yeah. single day. Or if we have a tornadic storm that rips the roof off of our house. like One of the things, I, and I've been doing this a long time, and I just learned this. If you have a tornado hit your home, get this, the insurance company will generally, unless it's very superficial damage, c- consider it a total loss. Once they've done that, They will tell you that since it's a total loss and they're paying for everything, you can't go get your stuff out of your own house. Right. There was a lady in Colorado I just featured who had wedding photos in her house, and the insurance company said she couldn't go get them.
1: Wow. I I can tell you that during Hurricane Andrew where uh, I helped out with uh, some of the medical uh some of the medical assistants, that you couldn't enter some of the neighborhood, some of the National Guard. Yeah. They had they had National Guard posted at the entrances of some of these places.
0: And I get preventing looting, but I'm talking about the point where homeowners are, you know, supposed to be allowed back in to get their own stuff. So, like, one of the things you learn there, then, is if you do have a tornado, and you are going to say, okay, we can't stay here tonight, we need to go get a hotel room or something, we need to call our insurance company, get all of the critical stuff, that you can take with you before you leave. We've right. also learned with, you know, fire preparedness. We had an interview with a guy on several years ago. He had a fire. It w- the house was pretty much a total loss, but there were some things in the house that were recoverable. The insurance company sent contractors out to board the windows up and all. Right. While they were gone, there, you know, gave them money. I mean, the insurance company did everything it was supposed to do. The contractors that were sent to board up the house. In this man's lowest point, after losing his house, stole things out of the house. (laughs) He had a washer and dryer that was still usable. Uh They stole a washer and dryer. They stole all types of things when he went back and cataloged an inventory because it was mostly smoke damage. So while the house was shot, there was a lot of stuff in it that if it wasn't a furniture piece or something, could have been recovered. And they stole a few of the things that he had left The people sent to board up his house. So his advice was, for instance... If you have a disaster like this and they send people to do that, even though you're distraught, even though you just want to go take your family somewhere and get a shower or whatever, you stay there till the last board goes up and you make sure nothing leaves. And to me, like that is one of the lowest things that a person could do. And I mean, so that's the kind of thing we teach people about. And it happens, but it happens every day. Look at the riots in Ferguson,
1: riots in uh, Baltimore. Yeah. After all, this brouhaha with the uh, the the police and and uh, the residents. Uh, there was lo- widespread looting just yep. essentially for fun.
0: It, 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 amazingly, though, when they get to the neighborhoods where people are armed, that all stops, right? Even in Del- yes, the, the and, Rodney King riots yeah. back, you know, what is it, 15, 20 years yeah. ago almost now, when, when they got to where the Korean like dry cleaners were and all, the Koreans went up on their roofs mm-hmm. with AKs. Yep. That was the end of that stuff. So, I mean, yeah. that's another thing. We don't... We don't talk about like the doomsday prepper stuff here at all, but being armed and being prepared to defend yourself, and then right back into that. If you have riots, you have people throwing stuff around. You're gonna have people with lacerations, cuts, whatever. Then you got to get back into medical preparedness. Mm-hmm. Like these things overlap over and over and over again. I don't think people realize because what happens is people get what I call they become type cap, type cast preppers, right? So the person, the, think about the psychology of when you decided everything wasn't just special. It was probably something that did it for you. As a doctor, it was probably something to do with medical.
1: Yes. But
0: but a lot of people, you know, will come to it from that. But other people will one day, you know, hear something like the former comp trailer of the country, uh, David Walker, who has no political ties to anybody because he served under multiple administrations. Say, yeah, we have hundred and fifty trillion dollars of unfunded liabilities. And that person goes, what's an unfunded liability? So they fi- they use Google. <laughs> they figure it out and they're like, that's money that we're going to owe that we absolutely know we will not have. And so they freak out about economics. Or somebody sees a movie or reads a book about an EMP or a a coronal mass ejection and realizes how, how at risk the electrical grid is. Whatever their avenue of entrance into preparedness is, they get focused on that and they're worried about preparing for what you would need in that particular disaster. So they lose the commonality. What happens when there's a, a disaster in a foreign country and, and they ask us for aid and they ask people to send supplies? What do they say? Food, Food medicine, water, comfort basics. items, the right? That, those four things are always what people need. A way, a way to prevent to provide shelter to to secure to, to illnesses. More people died in Haiti after the earthquake of freaking diarrhea than anything else, right? And
1: and most of the people that died of Ebola, yeah, died because they couldn't get. IV fluids, that they ran out of IV fluids early, and they died of simple dehydration because they were having hemorrhagic diarrhea. The, only a small percentage of the Ebola patients died because they bled to death internally or, or
0: because they spontaneously And just to be clear, we're talking about people that were getting help.
1: Yes. Right. Those right. People, if you're not
0: getting help, you're
1: done. Right. You're done with that, but the truth of the matter is, is that simple things... You know, just some salt, you know, sodium chloride, you know, IV would have saved a lot of these folks, yeah, especially in the early going when they didn't have uh, the materiel.
0: Coming back around to my listeners' questions for this week, uh, we had one person ask about making decisions for first aid kits uh, between having like a highly mobile kit, something you could take with you versus. Your vehicle kit and what like how do we determine what the critical items are that we would always have with us if we're away from our vehicle and what would maybe be some things we might keep in a vehicle because I don't know about you but my my truck carries a lot more weight than I do. Right. Well, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> right, you know. Exactly. You. Well, the
1: truth of the matter is, is lightweight stuff is the most important thing for your IFAC. That's why we use things like H uh, and H compressed gauze dressings. These things fit into a little square that's like. Two by two or two by three, yeah, and when you fold, but when you open it, it's four inches by twelve feet of gauze. Wow! And so it, this is an awesome, awesome item for your eye pack, and certainly uh, you can put a few of them without putting any additional weight on your pack. But your car is an—I mean, it is a vault. I mean, it's a bank vault where you can put stuff that's going to definitely increase your chances of survival. Things like wooden blankets. A woolen... A wooden blanket, wooden Yeah, wooden blankets. Yeah, I find tried one. Today. It yeah. freaking hurt. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't comfortable at all. Woolen, woolen blankets. Wool itches, yeah, but yeah. wood uh, is hard. Yeah, right. <laughs> woolen of, blankets. A okay. lot of splinters. So woolen blankets are awesome. Think about what what they're useful for. Of course, they're, they're good for winter car survival. You get stranded in your car, and you indeed indeed will be very happy if you have some woolen blankets how about if you're uh, in a fire how about if you're in a wildfire wool actually is relatively fire resistant uh by the way don't wet a lot of people think that it's good to have a wet woolen blanket in a fire don't do that it conducts heat very well you wind up burning yourself Yeah. yeah you'll wind up right just like a lobster um you can put spare sets of dry clothes, and there are going to be so many circumstances where you're going to be bugging out in the rain, let's say, and if you can have extra, extra clothes in if in your pack or many extra clothes in your vehicle, then you're more likely to stay dry. If you're more likely to stay dry, you're more likely to stay alive and not sick, Um Let's see, uh, hand warmers. Uh, you get more. You get to carry some tools with you. I mean, it probably not. You probably don't want to carry a hammer with you unless you're Tyrese from uh, Walking Dead. <laughs> he he did it. He was pretty handy with a hammer. But but that's awesome. You can also have. You can also carry rope with you. It, you never know when you have to go places that that are going to require rope. There's just a lot lot of different things. And you can have. And you can devote more. Space to your medical supplies, too. I mean, we have medical supplies for the community medic on our store, and it is a big pack. And so, unless you're with a group, you can't really devote that space to just a pack for medical supplies.
0: Yeah, by the way, get in a group. <laughs> <That's> yeah, definitely. <laughs> my kind of my approach to this is what, what people are always trying to do is figure out how they can like totally pack a bug-out bag, right, with the, with their first aid kit, with all of the gear that they're going to need, and then be able to throw it on their back and go walking down the road. Okay, I know we all watch TV. I know we all see a guy with, you know, an AK-47 in a pack survive for like two years against the zombies or whatever. Okay, but this is real life, mm-hmm. right? If you are If you have left your vehicle behind... Okay, that means something really, really, really has gone wrong, and the reality is you will never be able to carry everything you need. You have to work with what you have. However, my vehicle kit is in a great big Ranger field bag, okay. and it weighs a lot, right? Mm-hmm. A, U- a UTG Ranger field bag, it's huge, it's like a giant duffel bag. Plus, we have one of your hospital bags, and if we're going anywhere long term, we take that. And that's a, it's like the biggest one you have, right? Because you were nice enough to give it to us. Um, and between those two, there's no way we can pick both of those up and go. But what we have there is the kitchen sink theory. We have everything we could possibly carry that makes sense that we could ever possibly need. If we do need to go mobile, then our smaller bug-out bags that are really, truly 72-hour kits, what we're able to do is go, is there anything in here we're not going to need? Exactly. And we can jettison that, and then we can say, in this larger kit, is there anything that particular because of this situation we're going to need? And we're able to modularly take that stuff out. For instance, if it's summertime and I have to walk... 12 miles to get back to Civilization because my car broke down, and I have a great big parka. I'm not taking that, right. right? But I'm going to make more room for water. 12 miles, I can do 12 miles in a day, no problem. I don't need much food to go 12 miles. Exactly. And water's 8 pounds, 8.3 pounds a gallon, so it sucks to carry it. But if it's 100 degrees out, I'm going to probably put a gallon of water in myself before I leave. I'm going to carry a couple gallons with me, and I'm going to get where I'm going. And if I know that the place I'm going to is absolutely, when I get there, like, there's a ranger station 12 miles down the road. Once I get there, they're going to make a phone call for me. Somebody's going to come fix my car. I'm not worried about anything but basic preparedness for that 12-mile trip. I'm not worried about a lot of food. I'm not worried about making campfires and stuff like that. I just need to, if I know the distance of travel. Conversely, if I don't know where I am, and I'm broke down, and I don't know where a point of safety is, I'm looking at sheltering in place, and now I have Everything I could possibly want with my vehicle. So it's all dependent on the situation, time of year, climate, situ, how are you injured or not? Right. For example, in our area in Florida, we have water.
1: You know, you can't really walk 50 feet without stepping in yeah. water. And so for us, let's say wa- having a life straw. Yeah. You know, your water correct. certainly could be questionable. So, you know, we're pretty good w- with just, just carrying a life straw. It's light, light, uh, compact and you know perfect for for even a small pack but the the fact of the matter is, is that there is there are a lot of things that we would need over the course of time and so you might even consider i mean we have a specific plan of action of where exactly we would want to go mm-hmm. and so we have uh, actually put together this is going to sound weird to you but we have pvc pipe that, uh, you know, wide PVC pipe that we, you know, capped at both ends. We put a bunch of different things in it, and we buried it or hid it in in sort of on the way. No, you know? it doesn't sound crazy and to me Off, at all. off the caching. road, off the road, and on the way. Because yeah. we believe that
0: whenever something happens, the National Guard is going to come in very pretty quick and close the road. One of the great ways to do that, by the way, is instead of, like, just taking this tube and burying it in the ground, what you do is you, you end cap the bottom with a PVC end cap with the cement. Mm-hmm, right. And then you put a fitting on the other end that uses a screw-in, uh, gasketed fitting that you can screw in. Mm-hmm. And then you take a, a post hole digger and you bury that thing vertically. And then you're able to just expose the top and all your gear down there. You basically put a rope to the bottom. Mm-hmm. And when and you, you need to get it. your gear out, you just pull it straight up out of the tube. And that's a lot more effective. The big thing with caches like that is you have to make damn sure that you can actually find them. Because sitting there going, well, that tree has a Y in it, and that tree has this, and it's right here, and I'll remember. No, you won't. So you have to have ways to find your caches. But that actually makes a tremendous amount of sense. I don't think that's overkill. And... It's something I can't say we haven't done um, (laughs) either. But let's kind of – I want to wrap the show up. We're we're hitting about an hour of uh, talk here. You were telling me about something I didn't even know about, CRF food recall. Oh, yeah. This is a health issue. It's like a bunch of countries and all kinds of stuff that we need to know about, like not dying by the food we're eating. You know, I have to tell you that I'm
1: concerned that we're having so many events – Of food contamination in this country. I mean, as you know, they closed on the West Coast a a bunch of Chipotle restaurants Mm -hmm. uh, due to an E. coli outbreak. There they and now, CRF Frozen Foods, which manufactures 350 well, it manufactures thousands of items, 358 of them under 42 different well-known brand names. Are being recalled due to bacterial contamination with something called Listeria Listeria monocytogenes. And this causes a diarrheal type illness. It's thrown five people in the hospital, no, seven people in the hospital already. It's killed two of them. And what's happening is that these foods, which are widespread in places like Safeway, in Costco, in uh, Trader Joe's, in Let's see, Food Lion, I'm, I'm looking at a bunch of other ones, Oh, and, Walmart, and of course, Walmart. Well, if, it makes,
0: if it makes it, it's well, sold,
1: it, it's in Walmart, right? In Walmart, right, exactly. So that would include Sam's Club as well. Exactly, and New right, you would think, and this includes almost all frozen fruits and vegetables. So I want you, if you buy your food from there, any of these places, I want you to look at the expiration dates, expiration dates between um, I think June 2004, 2016 and June 2018 That's many of these lots have been recalled. You may already have them in your freezer, so I want you to take a look at it. It involves, so you, wait, you, carrot. I just want to say yeah. carrots, broccoli, squash, peaches, raspberries, strawberries, blueberries, but it even goes to include things like planters, sunflower seeds, Things like that. So this is a big issue. The if you get a bad case of, uh, of listeria, your death rate's about 20%. Interestingly enough, about what it is so far. Yeah. You know, with this, and we hope that. Uh, I, I think it, it was courageous of C R F Foods to to recall all of these items, but it really is something that needs to be done, and we need to make sure that. Our food is properly prepared. And so that, I think, is the main thing that uh, what I want to get through with this is that your job, if you're going to be responsible medically in times of trouble, that your responsibility is to make sure that the water, the questionable water, is sterilized and that food is properly prepared, properly cooked. These are the ways that people wind up dying, and they're going to die more often from Diarrheal diseases yeah. you mentioned, yeah. uh, and, and
0: dehydration caused by it, then from
1: gunfights at the OK Corral. Uh, absolutely, and
0: I mean, listeria is a serious illness. There's a lot of stuff that people can get foodborne that's not good, but you know your odds of dying are pretty low. Listeria is, in many cases, a lethal disease, and for people that don't die, it often has long-term consequences. Um, it's 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 bad stuff. And Lister- yeah, and listeria grows best in the fridge. Yeah, and I mean, that's just one of the concerns here. So, if, if, correct me if I'm wrong, but if it was infecting something that was fully cooked to high temperatures, it, it dies like anything yes. else. But when it's in raspberries, I mean, who cooks a raspberry? Right. Right. Exactly. I guess some people make pies or cobblers, but in general, stuff like frozen raspberries, frozen peaches, et cetera, what are people doing with those? They're either making desserts, using them, you know, defrosted, or they're popping them into the Vitamix and making their health shake. So you got a Listeria health shake. And Listeria is starting to worry me with the food companies because we just finally got Bluebell ice cream back here. Now I know they don't have bluebells.
1: But I know it was recalled that was recalled right. a couple of years ago.
0: But in Texas, saying the bluebell ice cream's not in the store, that's like saying you're not allowed to go outside. I mean it's 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 a I don't really care. I'm not an ice cream guy, but like for people that eat ice cream, that's like a an institution <laughs> here right. in Texas, right? And it was over a year, I think, that there was no bluebell in the stores and that was listeria as well and that's you know another thing you don't cook ice cream that's true at least it's not ice cream after you cook it right so the important thing to know about all this stuff and
1: what i want your your listeners to take away from this is that make sure you rinse raw produce i mean don't just i mean even apples or or anything that any type of fruit remember that you have to rinse it and that in and of itself that if, even if you peel something, if it's something with a rind, the yeah. truth of the matter is, is that if you're peeling the rind off, then you've got the bacteria on your hands, and then you're going to touch the fruit yeah. inside. And so it, just because it has a rind does not mean that you are safe. So that's something that's very important.
0: Well, that's an interesting thing, too, because people say, well, I, you know, I'm going to cut the watermelon. Well, then the knife goes through the rind and all through the flesh. Right, you know, exactly. So there's, there's another example. Yes. So wash before cutting. Um, I think we've kind of ran it out here, but I want to tell you I appreciate you being on the air with us today, Bones, and uh, it's been great having you here at the Homestead, and uh, we're going to get this stuff uh, wrapped up and out to everybody, so if you're listening on either end of this, obviously we, we've put this out on both of our podcasts uh, today, and I uh, hope you guys enjoyed that. I don't know that we'll be doing this a lot, because unfortunately <laughs> we don't get together that much, right, we but don't. it is kind of fun, and it, it's great to have somebody to actually you know interact with on the show that... Uh, it switched on to this stuff, so thanks for being with us. Well, I am very glad that you
1: have been on our show as well. This is sort of a, a, a strange collaboration yes, today, is, and so so if you've heard this on jack if you listen to both jack's podcast and you're one of the three people that listen to our (laughs) podcast then you know you're going to wind up hearing possibly a lot of the same stuff but the truth of the matter is is that everything that we talked about today is actually worth hearing twice so jack thank you so much for coming on the survival medicine hour we really appreciate it and uh, we wish you the best and i Have I'll tell you, I envy you. You have an awesome setup here. And uh, best regards to Charlie and Max.
0: (laughs) Okay, cool. And, uh, of course, remember, guys, you can send in questions for Doc Bones uh, for the Expert Council. And I need more questions because I've run out of questions. Uh, I'll be making up the new list for the Expert Council uh, this week to get out for the coming shows. All right, folks, it was awesome having Doc on the air with me today. As we wrap up today, I want to remind you, if you love the work we do here at The Survival Podcast. You want to make sure that we're always here to help you with great information like you heard today, the expert council, the call in shows, the standalone shows, all the great stuff, the interviews that you should really become a member of the support brigade. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on members. It's five bucks a month or you can do it for $50 a year and get a discount if you do it that way. That comes out to 18.3 cents an episode for great content like you're hearing here. But the good news, of course, is there's so many discounts available that you're, you're going to pay for your membership just in discounts alone. Uh, and when you become a member, you're going to get like $200 worth of free ebooks you can download and keep forever on day one. Lots of great things. And if you're military, law enforcement, or Peace Corps, or a first responder like EMT, paramedic, or firefighter, all of you qualify for a discount. E me e e me right. Email me with TSPC service discount in the subject line. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences. Do that before, or not after you join. I'll get the discount code back to you so you can save money on a product that already saves you money. And remember, it's not just for active serving. If you've served at any time in any of those positions, you qualify for the discount. Just, again, email me, com, T-S-P-C service discount in the subject line. That will make sure it's not eaten by the spam monster, which happens a lot for some reason. Anyway, also, if you want to support this show and you don't want to be a member or you already are and you just want to do more, how about this? Go to tspaz.com, tspaz.com. Easy to remember, but it's really tspaz.com, one letter less than amazon.com. Why does that matter? You'll just be at Amazon. You'll be at amazon.com, but you'll have the TSP affiliate link, and then you do your shopping on Amazon, which costs you no extra money or time. You actually type one less letter in, and guess what happens? Guess what happens? We get credit for what you buy on Amazon through our affiliate link. And that means you're supporting our work and you're actually spending not a penny more. You're not doing anything extra at all. You typed one less letter and we really appreciate it. I mean, we really appreciate it when you remember us when you're making purchases on Amazon and do that because it really helps us a lot. Um, next up, I want to tell you about the uh, TSP Business Directory uh, sponsor of the day or supporter of the day, and that would be Patrick Goodman Plumbing. He's been servicing the state of North Carolina since 2001. He also does consultation via phone or Skype for your upcoming DIY projects. You can check him out in his listing on the TSP Business Directory and give him a call. I'll have a link, of course, to his listing in the show notes today. And remember, if you want to reach the entire TSP community, you can do that at TSP. Uh, I'm sorry, TSPBiz.com. And uh, that is, of course, our business directory. And you can, you can set up your business on the directory for as little as $5 a year to reach our entire community and eventually be uh, mentioned on a show like this. And if you are out there looking for any products and services at all, check the business directory service, uh, first, tspbiz.com and try to do member with other members of our community. This is like a family. This is the TSP nation. We should depend on each other first whenever possible. And you can find a lot of great supporters and a lot of great categories at tspbiz.com, the TSP Business Directory. And with that, I want to tell you about our ending song of the day. I've played a lot of music for you by a guy named Warren Zevon. right? Uh, Warren, unfortunately, left us uh, quite a few years ago now, uh, dying of cancer, and performed right up until his death. He was an incredible musician, an incredible songwriter, a lot of really deep, meaningful songs, poetic songs, uh, just a great guy. Did a lot of collaboration with Jackson Brown, who I also love. Today's song is really more of kind of a goofy song, a goofy side of Warren, but also making a poignant thing, especially thinking back now that he has left us and passed away. But this song was written when he wasn't thinking about that personally at all quite a long time ago, back in the 70s. It's called I'll Sleep When I'm Dead. And I decided to to use it today because the, the first opening lines in it are so much to do. There's plenty on the farm. I'll sleep when I'm dead. And I know I feel that way all the time. And I bet many of you feel that way all the time with homesteads. Like, I just have so much to do. I'll sleep when I'm dead. But I want you to know that other people feel that way. And that makes you feel a little better. And we do need to sleep. We do need to rest. Sometimes things just don't get done. Do the most important things first, the things that have to be done. Get as much done as you can do with other things, and then still take some time to be with friends and family and have meaning in your life. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. So much to- I'll sleep when I'm dead Straight from the bottom Twisted again I'll sleep when I'm dead I'll sleep when I'm dead It don't matter if I get a little tired I'll sleep when I'm dead
1: I'll sleep when I'm dead If I start acting stupid I'll shoot myself Then I'll sleep when I'm dead
0: So much to do Sleep sí, when